Well, if you have your Bible with you tonight, we look at Matthew chapter 26 as we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26 to verse 30. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 to 30. Tonight we want to talk about the origin of the Lord's Supper. We want to talk about what do we do at the Lord's Supper? What, what are we supposed to think about? What should we consider? And then we want to talk also uh, about uh, various views of the Lord's Supper. And then finally, I want to talk about the frequency of the Lord's Supper. So those are going to be the four uh, main thoughts tonight. And also, I'm sorry, we should have mentioned here, if you want to turn into the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith in the back of your hymnal, that is that is page 936, <clears throat> 936. Now, you know, for those of you visiting the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger, shorter catechisms, uh, these are what we call our uh, doctrinal standards. That is... Um, you know, every church says they believe the Bible. What, what we do is we try to have documents that summarize what we believe. And I, I want you to make sure that we, you understand we're not putting these documents above the Scriptures. But we are saying that uh, this, to the best of our understanding and ability, is what we believe the Bible uh, to be teaching. So that's why we study these documents here. All right, let's pray together, and then we have some reading here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures and pray that we might, as best we can by your grace, Lord, explain uh, the teaching of the Bible, that uh, we might have a clearer understanding of why you have given us the ordinance, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we pray that this message might help us to be better stewards of the Lord's Supper, that we'd be better recipients of the table the bread and the cup, and we derive more benefit from it as a church. And so we pray for the Spirit's help tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat this is my body, excuse me, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then if we could look at the Chapter 29 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of the Lord's Supper, page 936 in the back of the hymnal, <clears throat> section 1. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, 
their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Number two, in this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sins of the quick or dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. Number three, the Lord Jesus Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to an holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, they communicating also themselves, to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. Number four, private masses, or receiving this sacrament by a priest, or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, lifting them up, or carrying them about for adoration, and the reserving them for any pretended religious use, are all contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ. Number five, the outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ, albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. Number six, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant, not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthroweth the nature of the sacrament, and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. Number seven, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to the outward, their outward senses. Number eight, although ignorant and wicked men received the outward elements in this sacrament, Yet they receive not the thing signified thereby, 
but by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted there unto. Amen. So there's a lot there that you can see. A lot of ink has been spilled on the subject of the Lord's Supper. In some ways, it's unfortunate because the Lord's Supper was intended, among many other things, to show the unity of the body of Christ. And yet the Lord's Supper has become in itself something of great division, a source of great division uh, in the church. Now, as I said, I'm going to try and summarize this in four parts. First of all, look quickly at the origin in the upper room. Then secondly, what are we to do as believers when we come to the table? Or some of you children may want to know, what should I be thinking about when my time comes that I'm going to become a communicant member of the church? Then thirdly, we want to look at some of the views uh, that of the Lord's Supper from different uh, perspectives and denominations. And then finally, I want to talk about the uh, frequency of the Lord's Supper here. So if we go to our text from Matthew chapter 26, the institution was that of the night of the Passover. Now the Passover, you can find in Exodus chapter 12, that was the night in which God delivered his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and miraculously caused them to walk through the night on dry ground, and then caused uh, the wall of water uh, on either side of them to collapse on Pharaoh and his army. And the Passover was that uh, supper that they observed the night as they went out and uh, out of Egypt. And what the people of God were to do was at twilight, they were to take a lamb sufficient for one household, and, and so if it was more than a household could consume, you could invite some others to come over. And they would sacrifice the Passover lamb at twilight, and they were uh, to eat of it. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was to point to the work of Jesus Christ, that one day God's people would be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. They took the lamb's blood and they put it on their home. They put it on what we might call today the door jam or uh, they called the lentils, and, and they, they, they put it on the top and on the sides. And wherever the blood was uh, located, God would pass over, hence the name, uh, that home and would not bring his judgment. Just as we talked about this morning, how the blood of Jesus Christ protects us from the wrath that is coming that was typified by the judgment of the flood in Noah's day. We are protected by the blood of Jesus Christ from the flood of the judgment of wrath and fire that is coming in the future. Well, this was also foreshadowed on the night of the Passover, just as uh, Noah uh, provided a picture of redemption and escape from the judgment that was to come. So also the Passover uh, lamb also gives us a picture. And this is why uh, John the Baptist would later refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb who comes and by his blood shed on the cross, 
He is the one that enables us to escape the wrath and judgment and curse of God. So it is on the night of the Passover that Jesus took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you, this is my blood for you. Now the significance of this is that Jesus is saying essentially, I am the sacrifice. I'm the one who's going to uh, surrender his life in place of sinners, and I will redeem God's people through that which I'm about to do. And I'm commemorating that which I'm about to do in this meal. Uh, taking the bread and breaking it. Now, boys and girls, he's not saying here that uh, Jesus, is by breaking the bread, uh, he is not saying that he himself physically was broken. Uh, remember that the scripture said not a bone of his would be broken, but the, the, the brokenness, the idea, though, of being a crushed sacrifice uh, under the weight of God's judgment. Uh, Jesus is broken for us, in that sense. Remember, they, the Roman soldiers come to break the leg of one thief uh, on the cross in order to speed up the process of dying. Uh, they do so to the other, and they come to Jesus, but Jesus had already expired. He had already uh, commended his soul to the Lord, and he had died, and so a Roman soldier took a spear instead, uh, and fulfilling the prophecy that not a bone would be broken uh, they left Jesus' legs intact, and they took the spear, though, and thrust it in his side. And out came the blood and the water from his side. The, Christ, Paul will go on with this same theological idea and theological theme. When he writes to the Corinthians, <coughs> excuse me, the Apostle Paul says that Christ is our Passover. He says it explicitly, that Christ is now our Passover. So, when we eat of the bread and body, what we are doing is, remember what we saw last week, that just with circumcision being replaced by baptism, now the Passover is being replaced by the Lord's table. This is why the church does not ad, uh, administer the Passover or observe the Passover any longer. That has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this has been instituted in the upper room by Jesus and Jesus gives it to his disciples. They take and eat, and they are um, to extend this supper to the church through the ministry uh, of the word and the sacrament. So that's kind of the origin of where it begins. But I want this to be also uh, not only a theologically helpful message, but I want it to be a very practical message as well, because I want us to think together about what, what do we do at the Lord's table? What should I be thinking about? How do I prepare? How do I observe? Um, how do I get more? Sometimes I come to the Lord's table and I'm distracted and I don't seem to get much from the Lord's table um, and, and I want to do better at it. So I want us to uh, consider here in uh, four ways that we can be thinking and looking um, as we come to the Lord's table. And uh, I've shared these uh, in the past with some of you, but I think there are four things, four directions, if you will, that you could be looking as you come to the table. Now, obviously, the first direction would be to look back and to look back at the cross. That is, as we come to the table, the table is commemorating the cross. And so, uh, first of all, we 
want our mind to think about Jesus' death, that Jesus paid the awful price and penalty for our salvation. And so we are to meditate at the Lord's table on what Christ historically has done. Now, as the confession brings out so clearly here, when we observe the Lord's table, this is important for you young children to understand what's going on. We are not reenacting the cross. Okay? We are not re-sacrificing Jesus all over again, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches in the Mass, that the, the priest uh, offering up the host. Why does the priest lift it up like that? Why do they ring the bell if you watch the Roman Catholic channel on cable? You know, what, what is going on? Well, they, they are signifying that the, the, now the bread has become the body of Jesus in a literal sense. And the blood, uh, the wine has become the blood of Jesus Christ and is being offered up to the Father as a sacrifice. That is not the Protestant view. So if you come from a Baptist background or Presbyterian or charismatic background, we are all in agreement on that, on the Protestant side of the aisle on this, that we all believe it is a commemorative meal and we are to look back to historically what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross. It is, it is not a recapitulation of the sacrifice again and again and again. Remember what we've been studying in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus was sacrificed what? Once and for all, or once and forever. Okay, one sacrifice. Jesus declared before he died, it is finished. It is complete. It is done. The one sacrifice has been uh, completed successfully by our Savior and does not need to be redone again and again by a priest. So we are to look back. It is a commemorative uh, event whereby we reflect on that one sacrifice. Number two, we need not only to look backwards, but it is also at the Lord's table helpful if we look forwards in time. Look backward in time to the cross, but look forward. Remember what Jesus said in our text this evening. He said in verse 29 of Matthew 26 here, he said, But I say to you, <clears throat> excuse me, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus is also, I think, pointing us not only back to the cross, but forward to when? The consummation of the kingdom. He is pointing us and saying to us as believers that as we look back to the cross, we are also to look to the future when Jesus Christ comes back, the king will return and he will bring about the new heavens and the new earth. He will raise the dead. He will judge between the righteous and the wicked. And, he, and we will sit down with him at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Christ will drink of the fruit of the vine with us in that day. So Jesus is saying that we need to be future-oriented people as well. We remember what Christ has done in the past, but we also, as Christians, are looking ahead. Remember, 
We are not as some religions teach. They believe that history just repeats itself over and over and over again for all eternity. The Christian does not believe that. The Christian believes history is linear. History is going to a telos, to a specific point. And that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the renewal of all things. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the whole creation is groaning for that day. Uh, the animal kingdom and the, the, the nature uh, you know, that God has created is under this weight of this curse. You know, the ground used to produce fruit like that, but now God has cursed the ground and Adam, you know, gets his uh, bread by the sweat of his brow and through toil and labor. And the ground wants to return uh, to its fruitfulness again. And, and it is, so Jesus is saying, look also to the future that when I restore everything and make all things new again. So we look back to the cross. We look ahead to the second coming. And then number three, when we come to the Lord's table, we should also try to look within. That is, we, we are told in the book of Corinthians that we should, what, examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's table, that we should be reflective. Now, there is debate even in our circles, and even in, in the most Reformed Calvinistic circles, there is disagreement on what this self-examination entails. I take, I think, the simpler view that John Calvin takes, and that is simply that we are to bring repentance and faith. Some of our more Puritan uh, forefathers believed that self-examination was a much more rigorous process. In fact, in some... Reformed and Presbyterian uh, communions, they take the supper very infrequently and maybe once a year, twice a year in some cases. And, and so that it becomes what they call communion season. And that is they have this whole buildup to this service uh, where they uh, go through the process of kind of intense and rigorous self-examination and meditation and reflection. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with, with that. Um, I think it can be a helpful exercise. Now, for some people, if you are the introspective type and are easily discouraged by what you find in your introspection, be careful because that can lead to a downward spiral. And I think I personally find sometimes the New England Puritans in particular more so than the English Puritans, I think sometimes cross the line in my mind. It's my own take here, but I think sometimes the New England Puritans press the self-examination so hard you wonder if anybody could come to the table. Um, and I don't know that that is helpful. Um, yes, we, we want to examine ourselves, but what... Why did Paul write those words? He wrote those words to a congregation that was out of control. Um, not to a congregation that, you know, was, you know, observing the Lord's Supper with some kind of reverence and, and, and you know, fear of the Lord. It was, it was just this selfish free-for-all. People were taking of the bread and they were eating it and taking of the cup and not waiting on others. And it, it just, some were going hungry because they mixed in the love feast in, in with it. And some people were eating and others had nothing. And 
there was division. Some people are saying, I'm, you know, I'm of Paul and I'm of, I'm of Apollos. And there were all these problems. And, and Paul said, you know, I, I'm, you guys are, are still fleshly. You've got all this division uh, in the church. And, and when you come together, you're not coming together to observe the supper. And so I think you have to look at the call to examine yourself in light of what the problem Paul's trying to fix was. And I don't think in New England they were having a whole lot of that going on. And, and I think the self-examination might be a little bit too rigorous. And, and even to the point where people who should have been taking the Lord's Supper sometimes were not taking the Lord's Supper. I remember I heard many, many years ago, it must have been many years ago because I was listening to it on a cassette tape, um, <laughs> um, Joel Beakey urging members of his congregation to come and take the Lord's Supper. And this piqued my curiosity because I, I wrote to Dr. Beakey and I said, you know, can you help explain why you were, you know, really urging people to, to come and take of the Lord's Supper? I mean, I live down here in the South, and if anything, I'm trying to say, put the brakes on, you know, because everybody down here says, oh, I'm a Christian, you know, and, and you're trying to, you know, maybe fence the table more, and he almost seemed to be putting the weight on the other end of the seesaw. And he explained to me uh, the history of the Dutch tradition where uh, there was this emphasis uh, on, on self-examination to the point that um, many people were not taking of the Lord's Supper because they did not consider themselves, in a sense, to be worthy uh, enough to take of the Lord's Supper, that they felt their sinfulness so profound that they refused themselves. They were fencing themselves out of the table. And the problem with that view, when, when you have people, they're, they're missing the point. None of us is worthy to take of the supper. None of us is, is ever going to be worthy uh, in the sense that we've attained to some level of sanctification that is so great that we can rightly, you know, now take the bread and cup. In fact, you're supposed to come and eat the bread and drink the wine to help your sanctification. It's supposed to be a means to helping you grow as a Christian. And, and so um, there have been different views as to what it means uh, to examine yourself. So when I say that we should look within, uh, I, I'm putting lots of qualifications to that, okay? And I think you've gotten that hopefully by now. So we look back to the cross. We look ahead to the future, the second coming of Christ. We want to look to ourselves, certainly. We, wanna, we, we don't want to come irreverently. Uh, we, we, we don't want people who don't really understand the gospel to be coming. We do want to fence the table from certain people, okay? We, we do want to fence it from those who have yet to confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have come to understand, you know, what the gospel means and what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. But we also don't want to set a barrier that is so high uh, that we are keeping worthy recipients from the table. Now, our own view as a session over the years, for the past 35 years since the inception of this church as a mission work, has been to invite 
any true believing person in Jesus Christ to this table, no matter their no matter what denomination they are, if they have a membership in the church and they've been baptized, you hear me say this every Sunday, you know where I'm going with this. If, if they have done that, we welcome them there. Now this again, in, even in the reform circles, is not uh, a, a unanimous view. There, there are some reform denominations that if you are not of their particular denomination and you are visiting, you will need to quickly meet with the elders and, and share your uh, confession of faith with them before you come. I remember we had a general assembly, and uh, so there are all these OPC ministers and ruling elders in, in a city, and a bunch of us went to this one church, and, and suddenly, you know, they had to quick do all these interviews. They, we didn't, they didn't know, you know, necessarily, I guess, that our general assembly was going to be in town, and many of the commissioners didn't know that they would be serving the Lord's Supper, and we were of two different denominations, and they're like, oh, man, I, you know, we know you're ordained and all, but we got to interview you, <laughs> you know, to come to the table. So there are those different views. We have not, as a session, been persuaded, though, uh, that that should be what we do here. We try to fence the table by way of the kingdom itself. So if a good Southern Baptist brother comes through the door, he's having vacation at Callaway Gardens, for whatever reason, comes here to worship with us, we welcome him to the Lord's table. Uh, to, if, if, and when, Now, we fence it verbally. Obviously, you hear me fencing it. Uh, but we do welcome uh, true believers who have been baptized and are walking not a perfect life, but a, a persistent life in Christ to come and join us. So, again, we look back to the cross. We look ahead to the second coming. We look within, and then fourthly, we want to look around. That is, the, the, as we take of the bread and drink of the cup, we not only are showing our union individually with Christ, but we're also showing our union with one another as members of one another. And so we need to look around. There is a relational aspect to this table as well. So that is why we ought to keep short accounts with, with others so that if we have sinned and we are conscious that we've gotten into uh, an argument with our spouse on the night before, we need to fix that before coming to the table. Um, and, and even Jesus says, you know, uh, if your brother sins, you know, go to him privately and, and deal with that uh, and get that out of the way. Or uh, if you become conscious that you may be the one who has sinned and offended, that we should go and acknowledge that and make that right with that brother. So that there is a, a horizontal aspect to the Lord's table as well as a, a vertical one as well. And so those are the ways I think that we ought to be coming to the table um, and you know what, what we should be reflecting on. Now, I want to talk a little bit um, about some of the, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, uh, but just so you know, there are different views of the Lord's Supper out there. Uh, you'll note that our confession brings up, even by name, the view of the Roman Catholic Church, which is known as transubstantiation. Uh, T-R-A-N-S-U-B, 
transubstantiation is S-T-A-N-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. I hope that's not too fast, but transubstantiation. Uh, let me read from their catechism. They have one called the Baltimore Catechism. And so uh, this is what they say about this. They say, quote, the Mass, and that's what they call it, the Mass. The Mass is the sacrifice of the new law in which Christ, through the ministry of the priest, offers himself to God in an unbloody manner under the appearances of bread and wine. So did you hear that? The Mass is the sacrifice. That's their language. It's the sacrifice of the new law in which Christ, through the ministry of the priest, in which Christ offers himself to God. In the new law, there is no other sacrifice acceptable to God save the sacrifice of the Mass. The Mass is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross. Did you hear that? The Mass is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross. Because in the Mass, the victim is the same. Jesus was hanging on the cross. It is Jesus who is the victim here at the altar. And the principal priest is the same, Jesus Christ. Thus we see that while Christ appears as bread and wine, he is, now listen to this, really and physically present in human flesh and blood to suffer and die again and again. That's quoting there from G.I. Williamson uh, in his commentary. So they have the view that, that uh, there is this miracle that takes place in which the bread now becomes the literal body of Jesus and the cup becomes the literal blood of Christ. You also have um, what is known as the Zwinglian view. The uh, Zwinglian view is probably one that is commonly held by uh, most evangelicals today, and that is that the Lord's Supper is only a memorial, okay? That, that there is uh, no presence of Christ at the table uh, in any sense, literally or spiritually, uh, but that the table is a blessing as the worshiper meditates on Christ, okay? So that the blessing there comes. What the Reformed Church has tried to do, the Reformed and Presbyterian Church is kind of split the difference there between the two. And they say that with the Roman Catholic Church, they agree there is a real presence of Christ, but they disagree. They do not believe, we do not believe that it is a literal body and blood of Christ, but we do believe that Christ really is spiritually present. That's why you'll notice that twice our confession said that we take of the bread and wine not in a carnal or corporeal manner. That is, we are not eating and drinking the literal flesh and blood of Christ. But the blessing of Christ is there, and we are, as Calvin puts it, we are feeding on Christ by faith. What does that mean? Now, you have to understand that when they sacrificed the Passover, what did they do? They ate the sacrifice. That is, the same sacrifice whose blood saved them from the wrath of God on the night of the Passover, they, they ate. What we are doing, however, is we are feeding on Christ 
but not in a physical way. We are eating physically the bread. We are drinking of the fruit of the vine physically. But by faith, we are feeding on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We spiritually lay hold of Christ the sacrifice and the benefits that are ours in that sacrifice. And that Christ is pleased to commune with his church in a, in a way, even as he does by his spirit in the preaching of the word. So that the, the sacrament is always to be accompanied with the preaching of the word. This is why, for example, I don't go uh, and, and just do a private communion with somebody who is sick. Now, we have had members who have been homebound for years. And what we have done in that case is we have brought a few members of the church and to that house where we had a service in the, in the family room with singing, with preaching, with prayer, and then the sacrament in which they partook with us in, in a group. Um, but we don't share it just individually. Uh, this is not to be done just something at your own home or in your private devotion saying, I just really want to get a little, some extra blessing in my private devotions. And so I'm going to break the bread and, and eat it. And I'm going to drink a cup. Even I, boys and girls, as a minister, I am not permitted to do that. Uh, the, the Lord's Supper is a communal meal for the congregation. Uh, it is not to be taken privately here. So even though I'm an ordained minister whom God is you know, uh, charged with serving the sacrament. I can't do private sacraments, okay? If I had a family, I can't do, you know, the sacrament with my own family. It is to be under the oversight of, of the elders of the church. It is, it is a meal for the whole body of Christ uh, whenever possible. Um, so we do, do believe that the Lord's Supper is, brings real spiritual benefits that is, it's, it's not only a memorial. Now, it is a Zwingli was right. Yes, we are commemorating the death of Christ. But we are saying that there's more to it. Now, how do you know that? Well, for one, Paul says, it is, he calls it uh, the cup of blessing. That God is pleased not only to use the foolishness of his preached word, but the foolishness of his visible word, so that eating some bread and drinking wine in faith, in commemoration of Christ, brings about real spiritual blessing to the soul. Now, it does require, as I said, some preparation on our own part. And if we're not getting much benefit out of the supper, one of the things we may need to do is we may need to, you know, prepare ourselves a little better for it. And maybe that includes Saturday night. So, you know, to pray, like last night I prayed, I think it was last night, you know, prayed not only God, you know, bless the preaching, but please also bless the sacrament that we're going to take tomorrow. Bless the table as we come, be with us. And Christ has said that this would be a blessing. Now, sometimes the Greek word used for the Lord's Supper is uh, Eucharisto, which means thanksgiving. So the other idea of the Lord's table is also it is opportunity to give thanks unto God for what he has done. Here again, I think this mitigates against the Roman Catholic view that there, another sacrifice is literally taking place here. 
But what we have here is a thanksgiving unto God for what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is also another view, and I don't want to get into the weeds too deeply here. There is the Lutheran view, just so you're aware of it. Um, the Lutheran view, some people call it consubstantiation, but I want you to be aware that not all Lutherans appreciate being called consubstantiationists. Okay, so you may not want to say that to them. Um, basically, their view is that Christ is in the elements in and around them. Not in the Roman Catholic sense that it becomes the body of Christ literally, but in, around, with, and you add your preposition, uh, there's Christ is to be found in this. And, you know, there was a colloquy between the Reformed people, especially in Switzerland, and the German Lutherans, because we were trying to see, can we unite the Reformation into a single church? And uh, unfortunately, the colloquy broke down. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't the Reformed people who walked away, okay? It, it was Luther, all right? So we tried to come together, uh, but Luther, in, you know, you probably have heard the story, famously pounding on the table, you know, in Latin, this is my body, that Luther wanted a more literal understanding of, of that phrase, that when Jesus says, this is my body. Now, Luther distinguished it from, again, from the Roman Catholic view, but he felt like the reform view was spiritual, spiritualizing it too much. And so we were never able to come together uh, on that point. Um, and so you have these two different traditions historically ever, ever since. So those are some of the views out there. The last thing I want to talk about as we close is the frequency. Now, as you know, we here at Covenant uh, observe the Lord's Supper uh, on a weekly basis. Here again, I think the case is made um, somewhat by inferences, but I think there is good evidence in the scriptures for a regular weekly observance of the supper. Now again, we always want to follow scripture and not uh, what any one man believed. Now, however, it was Calvin's view that the supper be observed weekly. So those Reformed churches that don't observe it actually are departing from what Calvin's view is. Why did Geneva not observe it weekly? It actually was not because uh, the theologians didn't want it. It was because the politicians of Geneva. Remember back then in the late medieval ages, uh, your city council had more say on what went on in your church than present day, okay? Let's just put it that way. Um, and so it, it, it was not Calvin who didn't want this, but it was actually the city council who said, no, we're not going down that path of weekly communion. But let's look quickly here and close. Uh, first of all, at Acts chapter 2, uh, Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, and look at verse 42 with me. So the Spirit has been poured out with great power. Peter has preached. Thousands of people are being brought to Christ. 
uh, the church is experiencing rapid growth. And so Luke gives us a summary of what's going on in the church uh, during these wonderful days. And in verse 42, Luke says uh, this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, talking about the church, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, if you read this with uh, one set of eyes, you might think that he's saying here, okay, they gave themselves to preaching and fellowship, and then they went to Cracker Barrel, and they had some fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. I don't think here in verse 42, Luke means to suggest that this was just ordinary table fellowship. Now, it may have been mixed as the original Lord's Supper in the upper room with ordinary table fellowship. But in the Greek, there's actually something that is there that I don't know why in English they didn't translate it, but it's not just breaking of bread, but it is breaking of, there's a definitive article there, the breaking of the bread. And when you understand that, and you go back to what Luke writes in the upper room, you'll remember that Luke tells us that Jesus broke the bread. And so I think what Luke is telling us here is that the church was given to apostolic teaching, fellowship, prayer, and a regular observance of the Lord's Supper. Not just ordinary fellowship after church. If you look at Acts chapter uh, 20, Acts chapter 20, And look with me at uh, verse 7. Notice here, now Luke tells us that they are doing the breaking of the bread when? On the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week, boys and girls? That's Sunday. Okay, that's the Lord's Day. So Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread or break the bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And then if you go down to verse 11, when he had gone back up, remember the guy fell out the window and Paul brought him back to life, but just a small thing in church, you know, just another Sunday. When he had gone back up, he had broken the bread and eaten. He talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. And then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, Paul says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break? There's that same language again. A sharing in the body of Christ. Now that clearly is referring to the Lord's Supper. So my point is, as you take the biblical data uh, in its uh, entirety, I think you, you begin to see uh, the case that the Lord's table was something of a regular observance in the early church, along with preaching and with prayer. Let me read here um, from John Calvin in the Institutes, chapter, or excuse me, book four, chapter 17, uh, page 46. Calvin, 
who, again, sought to institute the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis in his day in Geneva, says this, the Lord's table should be spread at least once a week for the assembly of Christians, and the promises declared in it should feed us spiritually. <coughs> Excuse me. And then Calvin again, commenting on Acts chapter 2, verse 42, says this, Thus it became the unvarying rule that no meeting of the church should take place without word, prayers, partaking of the supper, and almsgiving. Um, John Calvin here, when uh, the civil authorities refused weekly communion um, and, and said that it would be observed four times a year in Geneva, uh, and thus you got kind of the quarterly tradition of communion born in some Reformed churches. Calvin was disappointed and he wrote the following. He says, I have taken care to record publicly that our custom, meaning quarterly communion, that our custom is defective so that those who come after me may be able to correct it the more freely and easily. And so, uh, by God's grace, uh, we hopefully have done that for, and, and uh, not only Calvin being pleased, but the Lord himself. So let's pray together. We'll close. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study uh, the scriptures again tonight. Uh, we thank you for giving us the table for our blessing, our encouragement, uh, our edification, our growth in grace as a reminder of the width, breadth, and depth of your love, uh, as a token of your grace and mercy towards us, uh, that these come almost as love letters uh, to be handled and to uh, be observed. And so, Lord, we thank you for the table. Uh, we are grateful, Lord, uh, that you've given it to us to remind us about Jesus and his cross, about Jesus coming again about our union with Christ and our union and communion with each other. And so, Lord, may we derive much benefit in this church from a regular and faithful observance of the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.